I um, kept on having these realizations that people have an abundance of skills and we're teaching them janitorial trades, we're teaching them, uh, or, you know, primary placements in a slaughterhouse. He came, uh, or was resettled, and when we found out that not only does he have sewing skills, but he has sewing teaching skills, and he actually has um, higher level leadership skills, there's a place for him on our team any day of the week. This is the ProCo 360 podcast. I'm Dave Tabor hosting ProCo 360 because I love Colorado and I love getting to know Colorado's entrepreneurs. Today's episode features Jeremy Priest, co-founder, president, and CEO of the Naughty Tie Company. And this is an intriguing company because its mission is to provide dignified employment opportunities to resettled refugees and create environmentally responsible production processes. And Naughty Thai is striving to pioneer what ethical manufacturing looks like in the age of fast fashion. All that sounds amazing. And it also sounds more like a charity, maybe like two philanthropic organizations more than a business. And I, I want to break that down, talk through it, maybe figure out how a business without mention of products or services in its mission makes a go of it. So Jeremy, with that intro, I, I'm guessing, I'm hoping you can explain all of that. Glad you could join the show. In due time. Thanks for having me back, Dave. Yeah. And, you know, Jeremy says back because years ago, we did a live radio show, uh, probably four years ago before I got into podcasting. So it's nice to see you after all this time and see how your product and your company has grown. You as well. Yeah. So, um, by the way, listeners, when you, uh, when you look at the promotional graphics for this, you'll see, well, what am I wearing, Jeremy? That's one of our sort of, uh, what had you know, kind of developed out of COVID, uh, we had some really significant product pivots and our primary sources of revenue collapsed. So pivoting to masks, gaiters, supporting PPE for hospitals, then for consumers, um, ultimately evolving sort of into a holiday campaign around COVID comfort items, uh, uh -huh. velvet textured linen pillows. And then um, what you're wearing there is our t-shirt material robe. Um, so we have that in a bunch of different states designs and dog yeah. designs, but it's just meant to be super soft and to keep you feeling cozy. It is. And this is a bright blue with golden retrievers all over it. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking pretty good. So here we go, Jeremy. So we jumped right in, but let's back up just a little. And why don't you give us an overview of Naughty Tie Company? Absolutely. Well, today as the company stands, um, we're really still true to our roots, but we've really delivered on what it was we set out to do. Um, and at the heart of it, it's really about customization um, and figuring out, you know, with our intent, we wanted to create employment for refugees um, but that sounds fun and dandy, but how is it that you create a, a competitive manufacturing entity in this day and age with so much available offshore uh, manufacturing and sort of the globalization of the economy? And so custom um, was really the niche that we were after that, you know, merits an additional price. Um, but ultimately, you know, from a sustainability perspective, everything's made on demand. And so we're not building inventory. It's not a traditional business model, which makes it enormously difficult um, to grow and to scale or just to, you know, to succeed. And the product line, quick overview of the product line. Yeah, it started with ties. Um, that was really, you know, specific um, to some sort of tangential origin stories. And it was also like a very technically complicated garment to make. So we knew that if we got our foot in the door with that, even though it was sort of a mature, archaic product category, that it would 
um, help us, you know, learn the equipment, learn sewing, learn product creation, figure out um, how to make something valuable that, you know, had lost its value in a way. And then how do we actually um, translate that into other apparel goods that people are much more interested in? And so now uh, the product line is taking a direction both in, in more formal applications and scarves overtook ties as our number one product about two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm because of COVID that, that sort of halted. Um, and then, you know, the rapid pivoting. So creating of masks and, and net gaiters and things that really we love and that people in Colorado love. And so whether that's things that celebrate their pets or states <laughs> or space. Um, so in a way, the products don't matter. We're going to keep pushing on building customization technology that we can apply to every single product that's out mm, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, creating things that we love as sort of urban naturalists and, 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 you know, enthusiasts in Colorado. Well, so you're talking, I, I find it interesting that you're talking about your products. I guess, I guess that's because I asked you, I said, like, tell us about your product line, but your mission is to provide dignified employment opportunities to resettled refugees. And here's a quote from your website, by creating opportunities for arriving refugees to work in their trade and in a supportive work environment with flexible schedules, fair wages, and generous benefits, we're removing barriers for them to become economically self-sufficient and culturally assimilated. So backing up, like why did you decide to create a company with that mission? Yeah, there certainly was some um, emotions, you know, festering inside of me um, after spending six years in the military, you know, four plus years overseas, two years in Africa. So just witnessing... Um, the fact that a lot of people actually have security or perceived security in some instances, but their government or or whatever the case is, is so corrupt. And so um, really what I was hearing on the ground from people around the world um, was that they just don't have economic opportunity. And so that, that, that really got me thinking about economics as uh, my path in college. And so I came um, here to Denver to go to college and ended up studying at Metro State studying economics, a friend of mine ran the student service club and he asked me if I wanted to go volunteer with refugees in the local community. I was um, doing academic research on resettling refugees simultaneously. Mm. And so that was sort of the, the the point of convergence where I had a service learning opportunity and saw how refugee resettlement occurred. Um, was really gracious, you know, for the experience and, and for learning about the nonprofit side. But the entire time I um, kept on having these realizations that people have an abundance of skills and we're teaching them janitorial trades, we're teaching them uh, or, you know, primary placements in a slaughterhouse. And I'm thinking, uh, I'm also sort of dabbling with this group, Veterans to Farmers. I'm like, how could we have refugees and veterans farming in the soil hand hand in hand, uh, overcoming traumatic experiences? How could we um, employ, you know, fashion designers or tailors um, and, and create a business model. And so there's all sorts of, uh, um, you know, indicators of success. And um, Well, let me, let me interrupt you there because so you saw, you did economic studies, you started looking at how refugees are resettling. So when you, and you referenced that they had skills and that weren't really putting, being put to, to use, right? So what were you actually seeing and how did that translate into like, making ties? Well, I um, sort of simultaneously, I was interning at the World Trade Center Denver, and um, we were teaching these importing and exporting classes or preparing the curriculum, and I hadn't imported or exported anything, and the, mm. the interns were unpaid. So I, I sort of proposed to the 
the organization director at the time, that um, Karen Gerwitz, who's still there actually, that we, you know, we attempt to import fabrics from around the world, employ refugee women in this sewing training program through, uh, it's called We Made This through African Community Center. And it's mm-hmm. specifically to lift up the most disadvantaged uh, portion of the of the refugee population, which is, you know, female refugee single mothers um, coming here and having a really tough go at it. And so my, my, my mind was kind of conditioned around that. And so um, I had taken this idea of importing fabrics and exporting them through the, the World Trade Centers and employing refugees. And it was really this premise while I was interning there that I hmm. couldn't silence in my head. And I had a summer off between um, undergraduate and grad school. Um, and I had the GI Bill. So I had this really unique opportunity, or felt like, um, with only $500 in my pocket, yeah. I had a unique opportunity to take a risk without it, you know, um, well, how bad can it get with $500? Yeah, and I didn't have kids yeah. at the time or a wife or anything, sure. so my responsibilities are pretty narrow. Yeah, well, no, thinking about that, though, I mean, so you decided to start a business based on solving, you know, you saw an opportunity to put refugees to work, making ties and then other products, but it sounds like, you know, when you created the company, that you created a company with a mission that had nothing to do with product. I mean, a mission that sounds like you're, I mean, it usually is, you mentioned a nonprofit, it usually is a nonprofit. Business missions you know, address products and services, even companies like Patagonia and Ben and Jerry's, you know, they, everybody knows what products they sell. They're famous for their social consciousness and things, but they're still product first. And your mission doesn't talk about product at all. Yeah. We're, I think that's partially my own disdain for the limitations that it kind of connotes. We don't want to be known as a tie company. That isn't uh, necessarily the the target market that we are. We respect the product. We make an incredibly high quality product. But for us, that was the the place to set up manufacturing to start building our own production technology, to build our own customization technology. Um, but, you know, in any sort of social philanthropy, there's sort of this dissonance between um, you're creating a social enterprise, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit, to me doesn't really matter. But the distinguishing factor that we were making was that we would create a product that had value that was in demand or that people wanted. And so in this case, it's customized for organizations, custom scarves for organization. There's a demand for it. It's customized for weddings, bow ties, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It wasn't like we were having a collective of uh, like women artisans making jewelry that already existed in every Whole Foods across the country. So there, yeah. there is something really fascinating to the way that we do take a product first focus, but it isn't um, associated with the nomenclature of the first product. Why don't you talk about your products in your mission? Like, why isn't your mission to, you know, make beautiful products, you know, by deploying, there's no reference at all. Yeah, it's sort of, it's, it is undergoing a, we've, uh, we were, we were actually successful during COVID in our pivot, and we've deployed those resources to building a new brand identity, ah. doing more uh, mission storytelling, uh, building an entirely new web site and, and interaction. Yeah. And so the storytelling is coming to the forefront. Um, but we won't ever be in a situation where we're asking people to fund the organization out of charity. Uh, it is to buy a quality product. Yeah. And so the sort of the semantics of it are really shifting towards creating quality, customizable products that people love as a means to create yeah. employment for refugees and uh, repurpose plastic waste. So that's interesting. So then then the observation I have that, you know, you don't mention product. Is, I mean, that's really going to be shifting in your next generation of, communica- of communications and branding? 
To an extent, I think it's also just to be as inclusive as we can of the entirety of the team because um, it isn't just half our staff are refugees, but the other half of the staff uh, want to be connected to the mission as designers yeah. um, or, uh, you know, um, as digital marketers or whatever the yeah. case is. And so that quality products piece and, yeah. and really unique designs and the customization piece speaks to some of our staff but not, yeah. just as loudly um, or for some reasons, you know, and then... Other staff have no sort of personal experience or connection to refugees, you know, until they've come to work for us. So in many ways, the sustainability aspects are top of mind as well. So you'll see an elevation of that more dialogue around um, not just the way that we use recycled plastics, but ultimately the way that manufacturing is structured and how it's the antithesis um, Mm -hmm. sort of of like your your massive global uh, fashion retailer. Well, yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of news lately about fast fashion and how, you know, disposable it is and how horrible it is relative to, you know, its its impact on the earth and, and so forth. And you're really wanting to point out a sustainability path to nice products. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any, I think it's just a, an indicator, um, how much we care about every decision that goes into creating the product. And that's ultimately what leads you down the path to always having consistently high quality. And so it's, um, it's sort of that framework, um, you know, not releasing things that we're not proud of. And we've sort of, uh, we've been counseled kind of, you know, to the opposite, like get it into people's hands, see what they (laughs) think and then, and then tweak it. But I'm just sort of an inherent perfectionist and this is, um, this is what makes me feel good about doing what I do and um, having no doubts about what people receive every day. Well, and, you know, we we did talk, you've talked to both about product and about, I mean, you don't get good product without the commitment of employees. And I, I did want to dive a little bit more into the kinds of people that you've been recruiting. And, and you mentioned, yeah, there are designers and others without a refugee experience. I wanted to talk though a little bit to so people can understand just the impact you're having on people's lives. Because if we break down your mission, the very first part of it is, you know, helping arriving refugees to work in their trade. Can you think of an example that, you know, sort of helps us understand just what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, it seems, you know, somewhat intuitive or obvious that people have sewing skills. What we didn't really recognize is how many men are sewing um, internationally, sort of in that profession or in a factory setting. And so, um, we had built the business really to employ single mothers and women graduating from this program. But in our first course of hiring and in subsequent courses of hiring, it's actually been, you know, a considerable amount of men, which wasn't really resonating with me at first. But if you could imagine sort of being a middle-aged man and, and culturally adjusting and having seven children here that you're responsible mm. for as the breadwinner, um, you really need to be in a situation where someone can embrace you. And so if you, if you don't have, you know, the traditional kind of diploma and credentials transferring, um, you're going to have a really time, hard time. But there's one refugee in particular, Mark Munyakabuga from Congo. Um, he was actually, he was in a refugee camp in Rwanda for 17 years, 18 years. Um, and then at the end of that time, he became the president of his refugee camp and dealing with life and death situations really um, in, in the camp. Um, and then through a Catholic charity was teaching sewing classes as a job development program in the camp for mm. women to make uniforms for the kids in the schools in the camp. And so um, he came uh, or was resettled. And when we found out that not only does he have sewing skills, but he has sewing teaching skills and he actually has um, higher level leadership skills, 
there's a place for him on our team any day of the week. Wow. Yeah. Uh, hey, you're listening to ProCo 360, named best Denver podcast three years running and just last year named best Colorado business podcast. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and this is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. My guest today is Jeremy Priest of the Naughty Tie Company. Thanks to our sponsors, Kinsley Meetings. Hey, Steve, thank you for being ProCo 360's longest running sponsor. Via Technologies, Clint, really appreciate your hosting Proco 360 and keeping the website looking great. And Digital Frontier Printing, a very entrepreneurial uh, printing and sign company. I hope you'll all contact Sarah and give them a try. Go to Proco360.com and check out these sponsors and and uh, please give them a shout. So getting back to, that's a great example, by the way, of, of putting someone's really well-developed skills back to work. You also, in your mission, talk about flexible schedules, fair wages, generous benefits, um, removing barriers uh, to become economically self-sufficient. So come on, you can't do that sewing in the United States, can you? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> customization allows us to, you know, really set the price where it needs to be. Um, but ultimately we do have a significant amount of backing, um, which is really, I think one of the most innovative narratives that that we are exploring. What do you mean? Yeah. Um, so not only are we funded uh, on our own right by our revenue generating activities, um, historically we've been able to access some growth funding and, and additional capital on really favorable terms, typically through angel investors in the local Denver community. But we have investors out of state that have really taken an interest to this. Um, and then... Uh, the the innovative piece is really about activating foundations, community foundations, to take an interest in for in investments in for profit social enterprises. That's pretty unusual, isn't it? It is, and I mean, it it I think it was taboo, you know, for IRS reasons. That, but there was a clarification, uh, as far as I know, um, about a half a decade ago, and that really kind of changed the landscape. But billions of dollars of family foundation money, typically foundation money, more generally being, you know allocated towards nonprofits that they want to support. But that nonprofit then comes back the next year and makes a similar ask. Yeah, and so yeah, there's yeah. this sort of chain that um, is never unbroken. And, and this capital doesn't create, uh, it doesn't create additional value, both through provisioning the mission of the for-profit enterprise that they're funding, but there is a chance that they actually get that capital back. And so huh. how is it that we create sort of a circular um, network? Because I think the there's nothing wrong with the nonprofit model. The, the the government model for refugee resettlement has its purpose. Then there's the nonprofit space, which really yeah. helps, um, you know, in the immediacy of the resettlement. And then uh, there's a for-profit layer and that solving that last mile problem, how, how do we all work together yeah. and what's the role of, of for-profit enterprise and how is it different? So we can do the things that they couldn't do. In but a let's way. say a family foundation gives you a million dollars to enable your expansion or because you can't, oh, let me just ask you this straight out. Are they giving you a million dollars to fund expansion because they're looking for profit or are they giving you money because it's really hard to compete in the United States against international markets? They want you to do good work. So they're helping you so that you could, they're helping sustain you know, essentially creating profit where it didn't exist. Like, where's all that going? Some are sympathetic, I think, to the challenges as because maybe they made their uh, wealth in manufacturing, American manufacturing. Um, so they're not naive in any way to the challenges that we face. 
but the circumstances are changing. So, you know, even in the 10 years that I've been doing this, um, price pressure, wage pressure in China rising, um, and this, this, the situation sort of obviously with COVID supply chain sort of relocalizing as an imperative. Yeah. So the dynamic is, is changing a little bit, but, um, these family foundations, uh, many of them, their mission is to make Colorado's families and communities stronger. And so inclusiveness, um, especially with immigrant populations, is, uh, in my mind, a necessity um, for the strength of our communities. Are, are they giving you money as grants or are they making investments and they expect to be paid back? It's um, it's both. But uh, it's both and it's neither. They're, they're really program-related investments, and so there are some um, – it never would have even gotten to the point in which we were able to get those things yeah, without yeah. us actually demonstrating it for years in advance. That right? you're a healthy organization. Right, and so that that's... we're committed to this mission, um, you know, and, and that we've, you know, gone through difficult times and it's, and it's persevered. But um, in reality, they're making, um, some are making low interest, no interest loans instead of, uh, equi- you know, more yeah. expensive equipment finance. So they're helping sort of with the, you know, the, the capital expenditure and expanding manufacturing operations. Others, angel investors might be helping with liquidity issues um, and, and making, you know, uh, cash investments in um, for future value, but n- none are really p- pestering me about an exit yeah. strategy. So it's not. F- so these know. are people putting money in either as investments or as grants, but no one's no one's looking for ten x stuff out of this. It's not like investing in a tech company, right? They're they're doing it because they believe in your mission and they want to support you. That's what it feels like. Well, uh, yeah, it just puts my- the cart before the horse. I think if that's. Um, if that would have been the dynamic, the relationship never would have taken flight. And so it isn't, I haven't dismissed growth aspirations. Mm-hmm. I haven't dismissed financial opportunism in any way. Um, but I am saying that the two of these things can coexist. And in fact, the mission helps with employee hiring and retention, makes us a stronger organization. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps in mission marketing, brand storytelling, acquiring yeah. customers. So there's nothing... Um, it's not costing us more to yeah. engage in this way. And I think if anybody, any rational person started a business, they would say, I want to make it out of um, quality, sustainable materials. I want to employ people who have the right skills for what I'm doing, but also who uh, need help yeah. the most. And um, so that's ultimately what we're doing. We're just making decisions that we think are that seem fundamental yeah. to us. And that's why it's so dismaying that the rest of the world kind of operates I, in a... I, I get that, but let me ask you this, and you may you may beg me to cut it later, but I'm going to ask you this question. Without like-minded, mission-supporting investors, could you be financially viable? I think we, yes, um, at a different, it, it would have been a completely different growth trajectory. And um, I think... Yeah, I mean, I, I think we would have found the funding one way or another. And it just would have probably been more democratized through like equity based or some other yeah, crowdfunding yeah, yeah. campaigns or something. But um, there's no, you, you know, our founders and uh, I'm sorry, our investors like really go to bat with um, bat for us and, and they give us so much credibility hmm. um, constantly yeah. um, by saying, you know, by being able to say, uh, this is who we're backed by, and 
it, it's very helpful for them too to have a success. We're the only for-profit yeah. social enterprise in their portfolio, so for them it's yeah. an experiment as well. That's pretty cool. I like that. Hey, I want to talk a little bit about your secondary mission because that's to lead the industry towards more eco-friendly manufacturing processes. And so we're not really shifting gears because we're still talking about this mission-driven entity. Um, you know, talk about the idea of trying to sort of lead the world when it comes, I mean, look, these these are fun products. They're um, they're not meant to be heirlooms. So, you know, what's the difference from what you're doing in fast fashion and the values with which you do it? Yeah, but I mean, by all means, well, there's certainly a, a debate even internally. Do we make things to be biodegradable or do we make things to last <laughs> and to be past that generation to generation? So, That's a funny question. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, so I, I don't know, in different products, we kind of make different engineering decisions in that way. But, um, you know, truly the, it, it's all about process and, um, because of customization, like I said, we sell things fundamentally different. So we don't stock anything, um, because of that, we're able to have variety and availability and it's like what people want, but they, that's not what's being marketed to them. They want to be able to go there and they want to be able to change the colors to get the size that they need. And in reality, all of our competitors are in the same place. They're all, you know, manufacturing in uh, one province of China and are, you know, buying a ton of inventory and then are liquidating it. Or there's all sorts of kind of yeah. secondary and tertiary uh, models for them to be able to liquidate that inventory before it just goes to waste. So we don't ever have that problem. Um, and it's it, it actually complicates things from a marketing perspective. Um, and it's a little bit outside of the norm of what people are talking about right why now. Does that, why does that come? Because people go to a website expecting to buy something? Um, what am I missing here? Well, I think... Um, people are not used to waiting longer for something that's custom. They're not used to the difficulty or the paradox of choice in this regard. It's like that's on sale and it's what they wanted and they're, they're yeah. being retargeted something. So from, from a marketing perspective, um, you know, even loading our product catalog in and showing it, it's very difficult for people to comprehend that they can change those colors. It's just not the way <laughs> that they're used to shopping. And so it's a huge sort of buyer education campaign or, we know that even now, after 10 years of doing it, a lot of customers come to us and they don't know. Um, well, I'm looking at this, This uh, what do you call this? It's like a chart It's like a chart of colors, like a, a color wheel almost for fabrics and things that anybody could choose any of these colors. There must be, I don't know, 500 on here, something like that. Yeah, 560 plus hey. uh, some, um, you know, bridal companies that we match these colors yeah. th to their swatches. So this is our um, straddling of the physical digital. We We... We believe in really fundamentally leading with generosity. Um, and so this chart is free. It's also sort of the key to mitigating the risks of custom, sure. uh, where if people are trusting on-screen values and uh, matching for something important, whether it's Pantone colors, wedding colors. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is how we start the relationship is we send them this high quality print of our color spectrum. And that's really the beginning of uh, the relationship. Perfect. Yeah. Now, before we get it moving to the, what I'm going to, Call, I guess, the wrap-up part. I want to remind listeners, I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and ProCo360 is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. This episode is with Jeremy Priest of the Naughty Tie Company. Please go to ProCo360.com, subscribe to the newsletter, read my blog, link to sponsors, and catch the books I'm listening to on Audible. And uh, so, yeah, I do want to kind of move to um, to a wrap-up here and, you know, talk a little bit more in 
in perspective, when you think, Jeremy, of what you've achieved, because you've done a lot and it's been different at Naughty Thai Company, what are you most proud of? Really that I'm, you know, uh, sort of vain, but that I'm still standing. And How's uh, that? I mean, it's just been a brutal road where every time we get the company sort of optimized for a certain situation, um, something almost existential occurs at, at times. And I mean, um, not to you know, glancingly, uh, you know, engage in, in, in politicking or anything, but the Trump administration or the, you know, prior administration's um, cessation of refugee resettlement um, to us was we've spent all this time creating an organization to solve a problem that now it exists globally, migrate, yeah. you know, um, unplanned migration, uh, sort of rising, um, xenophobic sentiments in Europe and other places. And so migration, uh, obviously still being like a global narrative, but refugee resettlement was largely ceased during the prior administration. And now even though the administration's changed, the policies haven't really changed. They've changed, but resettlement still hasn't occurring because of COVID. So, uh, but you still, I mean, how many employees do you have? Uh, 13 right now. Yeah. And so, you know, if you need a 14th or a 20th, is, is it, there aren't enough refugees to, to find the skills, to find the people you need? Well, I think now, um, just as a analogy, when I, uh, now I could go get a very high paying job anywhere I want in kind of in town. Yeah. I got out of college in 2009 or, um, you know, 2009, I was getting out of 2008, I was getting out of the military 2009, I was looking for a job and no one would hire me because it was right in the economic collapse. And so the situation and the concept, you know, our mission is really going to be important as global climate migration continues to occur, the mission needs to spread to other industries and to other entities. Uh, but ultimately, as resettlement restarts here in the near term, our mission will become much more imperative. And then as we go through another economic downturn, the uh, refugees and refugee women uh, in the previous economic downturn had unemployment rates uh, above 50%. Mm, so mm. the specific communities that we'll need to target and the mission will become, you know, more and more relevant every day as circumstances continue to evolve here. So what you're doing um, is pretty special. Are are people listening? Are they watching and are they copying or trying to? Are, are you leading the way? Well, it depends which part of that you're talking about. Um, but, uh, you know, Thai competitors are modernizing and sort of their, te their technological savviness. And so we were really able to stand alone there for a while and are now seeing um, stiffer competition in sort of our legacy product categories. But um, I, I don't know if people are listening. I don't I guess I don't think about it that way. I, I just continue to see whether or not our staff are motivated and inspired and care. And um, because to me, that is what is going to make this place succeed. If people are inspired and creative and the mission resonates with them, they're going to really be engaged in a way that employees at another company will never really reach the zenith of contributing. And yeah. so that's we're able to do this with such a small team uh, but it's day in and day out uh, helping refugees solve practical problems, whether it's refinancing their mortgage or getting a home or, um, bit, you know, bouts of, of temporary homelessness or um, trying to go home and travel internationally for their for their family, seeing their, yeah. you know, deceased, mo you know, dying mother or whatever the case is. So 
that's really the the richness of the work that we do is um, getting to work in Denver with our hands creatively and um, helping, you know, really um, getting, you know, this international work environment in the middle of the country here. Yeah, so it's, yeah. uh, to me, it's an, you know, continuation of military service. Well, that was my, my last question for you. I'm glad you segued to it because last question, what do you think you brought from your experience in the military that you think is adding value to what you're doing now? Um, the, the, I think the most unique thing about the military is aside from sort of the combat experience that is really unique, um, or, 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 or rare, uh, you know, fortunately, hopefully. Um, but I was, I just had opportunities to lead, I think when I was 20, 21 and, um, that's the mistakes you, the blunders you make and the, the righteousness that you carry, <laughs> um, at that time. And, and so, but the international, um, uh, you know, join the Navy, travel the world that yeah. I, I, um, I did well enough in school and, and, and got international deployments, um, for years to Europe and Africa. And so that experience for, yeah. uh, sort of, a you know, a, a white boy growing up in rural Ohio who really has a homogenous community with no diversity, but doesn't understand racism or doesn't understand diversity and the, and the values of it because I'm not exposed to it all the time. So it was, um, just getting to know people from New York yeah. and Florida and Texas and California, how that's different, let alone the immigrants that are in the military becoming U.S. citizens mm. is a, mm. um, you know, a, just a, a profound experience to, to witness yeah. and to, to see. So, so, uh, I said that was the last question, but you, you, you stimulated one more cause I've got a son who's a uh, officer in the air force. And he said, some of your the bumper same things. Yeah. yeah, he said some of the same things like, you know, you get to lead at an early age, but as you think about, you know, um, what you learned that you're applying now relative to leadership, I mean, uh, what would you, what would you say, what advice would you give to my son, Dan and other young aspiring leaders, you know, about like, here's how to, here's what you learn in the military that you can apply in life. Well, I think the military, um, attempts to instill in you in a way confidence, but it's almost a, um, it's not backed by much. It's mm -hmm. a, and so the facade of confidence, just being, um, strong and, um, uh, uniformed and cohesive is not enough. And so I, I sort of had a deconstructive period after the military where I had to ask myself all of the questions about, you know, what do I believe in and why? Um, and reconcile that with the experiences that I've had. And so mm. now I have this um, sort of unabashed confidence that comes from a rooted place of values. And um, that is, um, in a way, that was instigated by my military service, but it wasn't totally fulfilled until I, you know, stepped into the breach and um, had to, um, you know, be in a room and not just communicate what I believe, but why you should yeah. follow me into the abyss. That's so cool. I think we'll wrap there, but it's funny that you that you say now you've stepped into the breach and that was after your military experience. So anyway, thoughtful. Thank you. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. Today on Proco 360, you've been listening to my conversation with Jeremy Priest of the Naughty Tie Company. Jeremy, thanks. That was, uh, it was really an interesting conversation. Thank you. Listeners, glad you're here on Proco 360 where we say live, work, love Colorado because you and I and my guests 
can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. You make the show successful by subscribing to the Proco 360 podcast. And if you haven't yet, it's a huge help if you submit a review in your app. Thanks again to show sponsors, Kinsley Meetings, Digital Frontier Printing, and Via Technologies. That's the show. Live, work, love, Colorado.